Alright y'all come on in, take your shoes off, sit on down. Y'all listening to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. My guest today, back by the woodpile, is a very young man who is passionate about very old recorded music. Jackson Garrison hails from the Hoosier State, was the host of the vintage music radio program called Off the Record, and is currently an audio digitalization operator at Indiana University. He and I met at the annual Indie Record Bash to chat about his old-timey interests and several projects he's involved in. My name is Jackson Garrison. 22 years of age and a reasonably sound mind. Now, you mentioned your age, you're 22, and I would say even the, the folks that are here, the older folks, mm. this music was not of their time either. Right, yeah, so and, their and, parents, yeah. So how does someone who's uh, like four generations removed right. get yeah, into this 90 years after the fact. My mom's an antique dealer, and so we always had kind of a crafty house, and I liked old stuff, like antiques and... Uh, old cars and music and but then originally I was into really f- like 50s music in elementary school I would actually like cover my ears when I heard modern music like rap or pop or something because I just wanted to listen to just 50 stuff all day every day 24 7 kind of like in middle school I was just kind of like yeah this all kind of sounds the same it's all just about teenage angst and unrequited love and stuff and so I kind of got into um, some big band stuff when I picked up the trombone in sixth grade school band. My grandparents showed me the Glenn Miller story that uh, stars uh, Jimmy Stewart. So I really like that film and then they have a lot of cameos like Gene Krupa and Ben right. Pollock, Louis Armstrong. My sophomore year of high school my dad brought home a CD from the library of, there were a couple, um, one of them was like Duke Ellington from the Cotton Club in 1927 through like 30 or so. And I really liked um, the, the cool, kind of mysterious sounding orchestration. And... He also got. Um, this uh, Garrison Keeler uh, and the Rob Fisher Coffee Club Orchestra doing Shaking the Blues Away. My mom found a copy of the Smithsonian's Big Band Jazz Volume 1 in an old cabinet that she got at an auction. She gave that to me, and um, that CD has like Paul Whiteman, Missourians, Jesse Stone's Blue Serenaders, uh, Chick Webb, all on one CD, and so, and it's all from the 78s and stuff, so I really like that music, and um, Eventually, you know, I realized that I could find the actual records um, once I got into college. Um, I started picking up a few phonographs. Too quickly filled up the house with those. So then, like, probably uh, just in the past couple years, I've been really focusing in on just collecting the records. Since I don't have any room for phonographs anymore, and uh, it seems like records are usually where the, How many the phonographs? crowd is. Phonographs I've got probably like 15. Of varying description. (laughs) With your own collecting, what's 
one of your favorite records that you've either stumbled across and and also tell us a good story about acquiring. Yeah, I was just telling uh, Ken this yesterday. Um, I just traded one of the records that I found in this in this dig last night. My girlfriend and I started dating in high school, and we're two years apart. She's two years younger than I am. Mm -hmm. And so um, when I went down to Bloomington then to go to school, she was still in high school in Plymouth, a di distance of about three hours. And I didn't have a car for the first two years that I was at school. And sophomore year, I came back home for Valentine's Day on a very, very snowy February day. And my dad and I are driving up very slowly and cautiously, very behind time. Mm -hmm. Corey's probably getting upset, my girlfriend Corey. But I knew that there was this one antique store um, in Kokomo that always had a record booth. And I had found 78s there before, so I told my dad, I was like, well, can we please, can we please stop there? I'll just be really quick. Uh, so I ran up there, didn't find anything. I found like I found one Ted Lewis record, which is kind of good. So um, I was kind of like, ah, okay, I guess I'll leave. So I was coming back down the stairs, and then I spy a uh, Columbia Graffinola. It's like a nice little cabinet machine in uh, one of the booths. And I was still kind of interested in phonographs at this point, so I was just kind of like, oh, cool, what does a Graffinola look like? Because mm -hmm. I'd only seen Victrolas and, and like Edison machines and stuff, so... I strolled over to it and I opened the storage compartment and there were six albums, or all 12 inch albums, and they were all heavy. So I was like, okay, there's something in here. So I pull them out and everything in the albums is either E or it was E and got broken by the album because albums are stupid. And so I, um, I started looking through them and there was, there was a lot of pop and dance bands, but there's also a couple really good ones, um, like uh, the New Orleans Owls doing Brotherly Love. And there was Warner Seven Aces doing Who'd Be Blue. the two that were like the big scores from the whole thing but so anyway I'm going through all these albums and there's six albums as soon as I start finding some good ones I run downstairs to the desk and ask them to call a lady up and see if she'll sell the album separately they said okay we'll try so they started to call her I ran back upstairs to get the best records uh, into this, all yeah <laughs> and all like consolidate them and I ended up coming out with three albums so 36 records plus the Ted Lewis that I got and so I ran back downstairs, and they had her on the phone, and they said she'll take 15 per album. I said, well, would they do 10? Because <laughs> I was a poor college student, and yeah. they said they'll do 10. Uh -huh. So I ended up getting like like an unplayed copy of New Orleans Owls and the Warner Seven Aces for less than a dollar each. Wow. That was probably my best find, like, yeah. money-wise. I found out that Dave Bach didn't have a copy of Brotherly Love, and that was one he wanted. And so I really wanted Horse Feathers, uh, you know, the Grey Gull, Cliff Jackson record. And so he uh, traded me that for that one. So I think that was a good trade. What's a holy grail of a record that you would love to have? 
Right now, one of my top wants is I like to collect the tune It's Tight Like That because when I first started collecting 78s, I thought it was really funny that there was such an explicit right. thing like that. And I mean, you know, I didn't realize that, you know, that's just the tip of the iceberg. Like, oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when you get to like shave me dry and everything, oh, like that's yeah, like, it's, that's it's, the it's, other end of the extreme. It makes me blush. It's so yeah, filthy. I know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I really liked It's Tight Like That. And it's a good tune. And the blues record of it, the Tampa Red recording, is a fun, moving blues record. I like that. I like that. Baby, but it's good. Honey, I'm tight like that. So I went about collecting all the different versions of It's Tight Like That that I could find. And I've come across uh, through either eBay or or anywhere. Um, I've got Columbia, I've got it on Romeo, I've got it on Velvetone, I've got it on Victor, I've got it on Vocalion. I've got another one on Vocalion, I've got a third one on Vocalion. Because there's Jimmy Noon, there's the Jimmy Noon alternate take, and then there's Tampa Red. Hmm. And then the, I also got the uh, Supertone of Zach White. Um, but then, uh, the one I really, really want is Lewis Russell's Burning Eight. Listen here, folks, I'm gonna sing a little song, but you mustn't get mad, for I mean you no wrong, oh, it's tight like that. And it's on OK, and, like, I found out, because, uh, I met Ken Brooks here last bash, and he had been listening to my radio show, so he already knew me, I didn't know him, but... Dave and Jim Prohaska had gone to hang out with Ken earlier during that bash, and Ken sold his copy of that record to Jim Brahaska for 30 bucks. Oh, yeah. And every time I've ever seen it come up again, it's gone like for super crazy prices. Oh, I'm no. like, no! <laughs> so that's probably as well as I can think right now. Right. That's probably going to be my answer for my Holy Grail record. When she's strutting us stuff, why just too bad, Jim? Oh, it's tight like that. Yes, it's tight like that. Now, last night you premiered a little documentary you made where you went to the home of, of uh, Joe Bussard. For folks who don't know, tell us who he is. Mm -hmm. Joe Buzzard was a kid growing up at that time rural Maryland. He uh, was really into early country music starting off, and that was like that's just what he collected. This was back in the fifties, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. He collected a lot of things. He collected like birds' nests and, and coins and stamps. <laughs> and when he was a teenager, he had his own uh, old-time radio show, as you know from the documentary, mm -hmm. with his uh, cousin, I think. And uh, he has a lot of stories about that and all the kind of trouble he got in with transmitters. And <laughs> right, because he wasn't FCC legal, approved. Yeah, yeah. The, yeah, in the legal aspects. In the 1950s, Joe Buzzard was one of the first young people out there to really kind of self-consciously go after this stuff and then over time has kind of become the um, idealized image of a crazed collector yeah. that doggedly pursues records just because through his mannerisms and through his other isms he just kind of is a is a really colorful figure in record collecting uh, society as it is. Right across from the motel was a gas station where we got gas and this old guy was pumping gas one evening and I showed him a record I said you got any of those things he gave me this guy's address it cost a dollar to call across the mountain. Best dollar I ever spent. So anytime that you get a chance to go see him, of course, you know, you gotta take it. You just have to call him up and he'll, uh, he'll invite you over. Really? Um, yeah, he's super accessible because that's kind of his big thing is to get other people interested and uh, inspired by the music. And I mean, he just likes listening to it. Right. If he's not entertaining guests, he's just working on his radio show. So yeah. 
yeah, so Joe started collecting early country music in the 50s, and then he started collecting records from other genres as he found them. And this was in the 50s, so, like, people were wanting to go to LPs because they were in stereo and hi-fi. Right, so they were yeah. basically either throwing out or selling at bargain prices their gem quality 78s. So as soon as he got a car, he could travel the whole state and other states and just kind of go door-to-door canvassing, um, which is something that's not really possible anymore, uh, at least to have any good success. I guess Dave and Andy did it in Grafton. And really? they actually did find some stuff. So. This is Andy Shum. Yeah. And, then mm-hmm. and I guess they, but they did have the police called on him. Oh, no. <laughs> just because people thought it was weird. But yeah, no, he's he's just found amazing things. Uh-huh. Um, he, I mean, it's to the point where record companies, if they want to put out a compilation, they kind of have to go to him because Yeah, there's he certain has, things that only he has. Right. And there, there's a lot of other collectors out there, too, like Tef Teller and Chris King. And, oh, yeah. Richard Nevins. That, have you met um, any of these other guys? No, not yet, but I have a feeling like I will pretty soon, one day or another. Now, recently, I guess you got involved in some kind of restoration project? So my day job pays the bills. I digitize old reel-to-reel tapes and records and cassette tapes and a little bit of videotapes here and there, but mostly audio stuff. I digitize all these things at Indiana University as part of their media digitization and preservation initiative, which you can access through mdpi.iu.edu. This uh, is a project basically to try to digitally preserve all of whatever IU designates as a a preservation priority by the year 2020, which is the IU Bicentennial. So this project was started and then they took bids from different contractors to come in, set up shop in one of their IU's facilities, and mass produce transfers of all these things. Now what are these recordings of? Uh, It could be anything. Um, It's just IU's holdings, so um, whatever people donated, the IU took. Of course, you know, I really like doing 78s, and we did 78s for So there's music music 78s and all that? Yeah. So Mm -hmm. it's not just like lectures or... No, yeah, well, the 78s, um, there was jazz and pop and country and a little bit of blues and gospel and stuff. The open reel tapes is where you find a lot of the more pedagogical... um, material like lectures and there's a lot of western european art music like uh, music school recitals there's also a lot of uh, field recordings from different ethnic groups and stuff that are from the archives of traditional music and then there's also like different um, things about speech and hearing sciences too mm-hmm. so we, we're doing a lot of opera and a godly amount of opera right now so this project the mdpi project is an iu thing and i work for their contractor that got the bid just called memnon they are owned by sony they are based out of belgium that started with the intention of preserving europe's classical music performances, but then they just kind of realized that they could open up just the service of preserving media for anything. They said that doing one person doing the whole project would take them like 40 years or something. So we're doing it in like three. Now, is this stuff going to be available for sale or is it just something to have online or... The stuff being transferred is being made into high-quality WAV files that will be accessible through software called Avalon. 
online. And so the idea is that people can just look up anything that mm -hmm. IU has audio or video recording wise and be able to watch it or listen to it. I'm hoping that there will be a sale of the original material since right. they won't need it anymore. It just right. sits on a shelf and rots away. So I'm hoping that there'll be a nice mint copy of the Missourians waiting for me for a right. dollar somewhere. <laughs> Indiana has a bit of a history of jazz and, you know, especially like the resorts and, and these little... And IU, too. Yeah, well, I was about to ask, was there any recordings, live performances that would interest jazz people that you found? From the... Or in Bloomington? Yeah. No, not really um, that I saw. I mean, there's a lot of evidence that, you know, there were live performances there. It's not part of my project, but when I went over to the... Um, university archives for a different project I was doing for school. I found all these old dance cards from the 20s, mm -hmm. like 1924, yeah. 1927. Like they were given out at fraternity and sorority dances. And they're like just like little, it's kind of like a golf scoring sheet, right. it looks like. And you just write your people's names that you dance with on the different uh, lines. Sometimes it'll say like who the chaperones are and who the musicians are. And it'll say like music provided by whoever, and some of them in some cases are like Carmichael's Collegians, wow. or Hitchy's Happy Harmonists, wow. or George's Collegians, or something <laughs> like that. So it's, I really wish I had found one that said Wolverines. Oh, yeah. Um, I kept my fingers crossed. I didn't find one, but I'm sure there's one out there. <laughs> yeah. So it's so funny that the music that we think is just. You know, it's 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 divine. Yeah. To, to a lot of people, it was just dance music. Right. right. It was, yeah. It was just pop music of the day. Yeah. Yeah. People getting sweaty hands wanting to dance with a pretty girl. That's all they yeah. were thinking about. Yeah. Exactly. They weren't thinking about the the, the cornet solo. Right. Or, or, yeah. So. <laughs> Who's an artist that you like to champion? Yeah, well, I really like to champion Bix. Bix who? Bix Spider Bix. Just, yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, let me think. I can't remember. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I... Uh, everybody, you know, when you mentioned jazz trumpet, everybody goes, like, straight to Louie. And, you know, that's totally fine. He's a wonderful musician. Yeah. And I think that as far as, like, uh, the mystique and the artistry and the, and the talent and the strange, you know, artist's demise... For all those reasons, I think that Bix is probably my favorite musician of the 20s. And, you know, he was one of the first white guys to, like, get it, you know, mm -hmm. the whole concept behind jazz. He always stuck with cornet um, because he liked the tone. And I just think that there's a couple of things in Bix's character, at least that we know of, that, that I admire. And he seems like a pretty genuine guy. He's, he's not necessarily like comfortable with himself he's always like pushing mm -hmm. himself to do better or uh or he's like always critical of his work but um you know i think that's kind of like the artist tortured soul coming out and right i mean he definitely spent his any money he ever had on on getting the guys together to play in the hotel mm -hmm. room and yeah he just seemed kind of just like a a buddy and i know that he really liked uh in like hoagie carmichael too i'm kind of trying to get more into hoagie's stuff mm -hmm. since i've been at bloomington i it's been fun to try to acquire Bix's stuff. Uh, I've got all the Bix and his gang sides on OK. I've got um, the Harmony record that they did. Now I need to look for the, the perfect records, uh, the Chicago Looper sides. There was one that just won an eBay for like 50 bucks, and I was like, whoa, 
Lucky Duck. And I'd love to find out more about the radio show he did in the early 30s. I was about to ask you, was there any, like, rumor recording of a Bix that nobody can find? Mm -hmm. It's not like the Missing Sun House or anything, but um, there is a really cool alternate take of Thou Swell where you can supposedly hear him talking Hmm. in the background before they start playing. It was found in a house in Davenport, so um, it's probably Bix's own copy or um, something his family had. Didn't he send the records home to his family and they never listened to them? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's pitiful. Yeah, Yeah. that's another kind of thing I think is interesting. It's just, it's such a good story. Right. You know, because like with uh, Louis' story, it's so wrapped up in racial history and, and other things. It's just like it gets too complicated. It gets too vast and broad. Mm-hmm. It's just like the Bix is like kind of like a little novella, and it's kind of romantic and, and tragic. And, yeah, it's, and you know, it's just the virtuosity in his playing kind of is uh, especially conducive to that kind of feeling. I think. <laughs> So you're involved with the Indie Bash. You have a bit of a hand in it now. Yeah. Well, so I I have more than a hand. It's more like an arm and a leg in it. (laughs) I was asked by Phil Pospicala and Sally Fee. Phil, of course, does his own record show in in Racine, Wisconsin. And Sally is the IAJRC. She's one of the, the, the head folks. So when I went to Racine, um, I met Phil there and he thought that you know, it's just really great to, to see somebody like me as really young getting so excited and enthused about this great music. And of course, you know, I'm like, why? Why wouldn't anybody get enthused right. about this? I mean, uh, this is really all I listen to. It's uh-huh. just, it's just all 20 stuff from '78. So. so Phil met me last year in March and thought that I'd be a good fellow to have in kind of the younger generation department. And uh, so. Over that time, he's been helping me. Phil Oldham's been helping me. Sally's been helping me. The Ruarks have been helping me. I've had a lot of help mm-hmm. from a bunch of the old regulars at the bash to keep it going. And so, you know, going forward, um, there's going to be a lot of changes. And just events like this, you know, it's not always, it's not about the music really at all. It's just about people coming together with a common passion. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's like with, with any any kind of get together but um uh, yeah i was thinking because across the hall they're having some kind of race car memorabilia and i think man that sounds so boring yeah i know but at breakfast i was hearing some of those guys talk and like yeah. oh i, I, get I mean it. yeah well because yeah. i mean like you know record collectors do the same thing that baseball collectors yeah uh do and we can't look down at anybody yeah because and like video game bad. like vintage video game collectors yeah, and stuff yeah. they like look for the better condition stuff yeah. and like this one was only made for this long and yeah. this one was licked by this famous person, (laughs) like all these weird things. So yeah, yeah, it's been, uh, I mean, record collecting, I think is especially intriguing compared to other hobbies just because it's, uh, it's, you know, you got the tangible aspect of the records, but you also got like the soulful, I mean, like the sound of the 78, it's like something so thick you can almost like latch onto. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that lends a special kind of character to the, to the 78 RPM record collecting hobby compared to other ones. Yeah, no, it's been uh, a wonderful, experience so far helping out and I hope that I get to do it in the future. You can find Jackson's documentary on Joe Bassard on YouTube. It's called Off the Record, Joe Bassard. 
And for more info on the IAJRC, go to iajrc.org. By the way, you might also dig past in the corner back by the woodpile interviews with other IAJRC members that can be found on episodes 56, 59, 69, and 77. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile podcast is produced by a closet, a pocket, and a suitcase. You can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at spuncounterguy. Be sure to download the new Podbean app to hear this podcast and others on your tablet and smartphone. And we are now on iTunes. Just do a search for Back by the Woodpile on the iTunes store and we should pop up. And a special thanks to thebrofisticate.com. Bro